You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Before we get into all the, the stories of the day, we were just talking about why some people might consider math to be racist. I suppose I could Google it, but it feels like a waste of my finger muscles to Google that. <laughs> so like, why should math ever be considered racist? I don't know. I was with some friends over the weekend and uh, one of them, she's Chinese. And she was saying how as a, she's you know, Chinese, Taiwanese, American, she has a three-year-old. She's feel like my daughter is not good enough at math because if you're fully Asian, you should be at least two years ahead of an American, but her husband's white. So she's like, I feel like my daughter should be one year ahead. Yeah. He's diluted her blood with that, with right. his white, unable to do math blood. Yeah. 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 In rats, they've done these studies. Like if you take the feces of a young rat and somehow put it in the guts of an old rat, the old rat will start to feel younger and have more energy and run around the maze faster. And if you do the reverse and put the feces of an old rat in a young rat, the rat, the young rat will be lethargic and get sick more and, and so on. So we need to start like Jay, send your feces around every now and then <laughs> and maybe we'll all get a little better at math. Yeah. You guys are going to get one and a half year ahead. <laughs> 
We still can't get rid of our white slimy blood, but <laughs> it's direct from the source. So you get directly from the source. Maybe we can make that promise to all podcast subscribers too, like an NFT sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to make sure I have Taco Bells every day. Yeah, Taco Bell will, will help. But yeah, I was reading this article and I think it's, it says in Seattle and Portland and apparently this math teacher is a believer and using ethics study in her high school course. They called it a mathematics for liberation to tell a student that the subject is used to oppress people. The critical race theory. Like one of the founding principles of it is that anytime you have any kind of discrepancy in outcomes between races, it must be because of some kind of systematic oppression or something. So where this comes up now is with things like Stuyvesant High School here in New York, where you have these elite public schools that are completely merit-based. So you take a test to get in. And the reason why it's controversial here is like Stuyvesant's like, 70% Asian, and it's 5% Black. So according to this new theory, the only reason that could be true is if the admissions test is somehow racist. And if you look at SAT scores or whatever, or math scores like SAT2s, if Asians do much better than Black people, then it must be that the test itself is somehow racist. So they've actually, in many places, this is a, like a huge controversy because they're trying to introduce quotas. Basically, either quotas or like to change the tests to do things that supposedly makes them less racist. Like the same friend was saying, they live in uh, Virginia, that for one of their elite high schools, one of the things that they've done is they no longer have multiple choice tests, even for math questions. You have to write out the answer, which then the Asian people say just discriminates against people who are not native English speakers. And also it's funny that I'm sorry, like it gets so dark so quickly, even though it's <laughs> early in the morning. Yeah, even in the University of Maryland, it's funny when you say it's racist, but somehow Asians are grouped with white students. And they really hate that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like they have this new freshman admissions and Roman and, and then on the chart, they're separate into two categories. First is student of color minus Asian and then white or Asian student. They group them together, which is weird. And look, who knows? Like this is some weird cyclical thing. And for all we know, the Stuyvesant admissions test is 100% racist and horrible and whatever. What I don't like is that there's no debate anymore. And I see this on Twitter. If I tweet something about restaurants all across the U.S. and which cities reservations are down and which cities reservations are up, Somebody will accuse me, depending on how the data skews, someone will accuse me, say, you're a fascist. There's no moral. Where did you get this data? All I did was give the data. What are other ways we can interpret this data? What does it mean to be a Democrat? What does it mean to be a Republican or a fascist? Or It's just no one has discussion anymore. It's just all labeling. Like if you say one thing, if, oh, I like ivermectin. Oh, you... You voted for Trump or Biden. I forget which one Ivermectin is. Like every category of life now sets you up for accusation. And on top of it, you can't be silent either. Which takes you back to what you were writing about. We're probably one of the original people writing about it. 15, 20 years ago, is college worth it, right? So you have all these arguments mm -hmm. like this. And so I'm sitting here and I send my kids to school, kindergarten through high school. And they're educated in a certain way. It's open. There's discussion. There's debate. It's what you talk about. They come home. There's discussion. There's debate. 
And then the system, the college system is telling me, give us $300,000 and there's going to be no more debate. There's going to be no more discussion. There's only one way your child's going to be educated or one way your child's going to learn. Your child's only going to be accepted socially if they adhere to a certain way of thinking. At some point, that's going to break down. Who's, what parent is going to say, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go $300,000 in debt for my 18-year-old who has no idea what he or she wants to do, but I'm just going to blindly send it out here because society tells me this is the only way to succeed or to learn how to think. I think it's going to backfire. I think you're going to start to see that more and more. Where Someone should make a metric of that of what percentage of jobs actually do require a college degree. Not counting like the legal ones, like lawyer or doctor. For instance, if you want to be the marketing manager for Crest Toothpaste at Procter & Gamble, they probably still require a college degree. And look, there's a lot of people who want jobs like that. I have used Crest Toothpaste. I'm glad someone marketed it to me with some BS advertising. <laughs> I bet you the percentage of jobs that require a college degree are, is going down pretty heavily. I agree with that. I take IT jobs. I bet, I bet you most IT jobs no longer require a college degree because there's so many like online courses where you can learn programming even better than what college teaches you. That's the thing. You, there's two questions there, right? There's industries or jobs require a degree and which really need a degree, right? Yeah, That's none of them need it. How many times, Dan, or, and Omen also, how many times th through the years have we given legal advice to lawyers? <laughs> like I would go speak at law firms and consult for them. Like they, it was ridiculous. And now everybody says, well, you want a lawyer to represent you in court? No, I just don't want to go to court by knowing the law better than the lawyers do. When you go to Wall Street, you're a new analyst, you're whatever on Wall Street, there's an eight-week crash course that every single new employee has to go through where they pretty much show you and teach you what you're going to be doing. It doesn't mean you don't have to be prepared, don't have to understand things. But I remember when I was coming into Wall Street, the kind of cool thing was to not hire finance degrees, was to hire yeah. history or philosophy or something. That was really in where if you had a finance degree, you had to excel why you should get that job because they were hiring the English major because they would laugh at you and say, oh, we can teach them what they need to know when they get here. And I'm like, what'd they just pay 300K for Dartmouth for? Dan, you, more than Omen and I, you have the more traditional Wall Street pedigree. Like, Omen, you've never, well, actually more recently, you've worked at, at big banks and we could talk about right. that in, in a second. But Dan, you came out of college and you worked at private equity firm, then Credit Suisse First Boston. And just to give everybody a, an idea of what it's like to work at a bank like this. Let's say you've described to me, like what could potentially happen? Let's say you're on a date on Friday night, it's 10 p.m. You and your date are enjoying dinner and maybe have plans for later in the evening. What could potentially happen if you're working on Wall Street? I mean, I, I think anyone that's ever worked on Wall Street knows if you're young, if you're just getting there, the odds you're even not in the office Friday night at 10 o'clock is probably rare. But, you know, and it's kind of you have to run the gauntlet. You get a call that you have to have a pitch book or M&A analysis or an LBO model finished by 7 a.m. Saturday morning. So you, you would just have to leave and go into the office and get it done. And the partners out in the Hamptons, they don't care. So they're just waiting for you to get it done. And that's the beginning of your weekend. It's a brutal kind of entry into the finance industry. And I don't think it's a very popular one anymore. What was the most egregious request that your boss ever had for you at an investment bank? I mean, it, it's all of them. It's not necessarily what anyone needed. 
it was just everything was overdone. But probably the best example of that is where you would do industry analysis, where in the leverage finance group, they would go to all the private equity firms and pitch what the best targets were. And so they would tell you, put this industry analysis together, and it would be a two or three inch thick book with 20 or 25 targets, all the analysis you can imagine of why that was a great LBO target, leverage buyout uh, target. And it would take weeks. It would take weeks of all-nighters, 100-hour-plus work weeks. And I just remember doing one specifically. And I finished it. It was a brutal process. We walked into the private equity firm, into the big conference room. All the partners were sitting there. The partner at my bank handed it to the partner at the private equity firm. And he grabbed it, looked at it, and threw it in the garbage and said, (laughs) tell me what I need to know. Nothing to literally never open the book. And I think there was probably some of that was for effect, but I mean, he literally grabbed this book that was probably took a year or two off my life and literally looked at the cover of it, never opened it and threw it in the garbage. And my partner from the bank just laughed and thought it was hilarious. But to get your job, like you were probably maybe major in finance or, or at least have a close to a 4.0 GPA at a great school, maybe have a PhD in finance or an MBA you work for weeks, all-nighters, and then boom. Like you said, it probably was just for effect to show like what a big shot he was. That That's why it's not real. Like with, tra- with trading is real. Like you either, you make a trade, you either make money or you don't. That's real. Yeah. We've touched on the whole banking and private equity kind of industry. It's, yeah, there's a lot to it that doesn't make sense. But we were just talking about, it, and I think Omid, we were talking about this last week. I don't think that's the top cool job anymore to go to Wall Street out of college. I, yeah. I think you see a no. lot more tech, crypto. I think you see a lot of the young, bright minds want to go elsewhere. They don't want to get stuck in a two-year program or three-year program at, a, at an investment bank anymore. No, the, yeah, the banks are pretty far down now because you have big tech, you have fintech for people that are finance minded, you have the entire buy side is very more appealing. So whether it's venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, etc. And some of them increasingly do what banks used to do anyway, like be a market maker, a liquidity provider, whatnot. So also after the financial crisis, like bank jobs are not exciting anymore. They're not as sexy as they used to be. A lot of the compliance stuff like that, Frank and stuff just makes the job a lot more legalistic and bureaucratic than it used to be. So this is why you're seeing the news flows. Like you have like first year analysts at some of the banks like revolting about things like having to work over weekends or even coming to the office five days a week or the dress code at Goldman. Post COVID, no one wants to come into work anymore. Basically no one wants to work anymore. No, I was just going to say the bank CEO, like the OG bank CEOs have gotten some of the most flack for wanting to go back to the old ways with things like have everybody come into the office every day. Yeah. yeah. And look, in every industry, though, to, to Dan's point, like why do people think oh, so many airplanes are getting delayed or canceled is that there are no more pilots. Like they decided they had other jobs they wanted to do. They didn't want to go back to work. My kids are raking it in the as waitresses <laughs> right now. Because they could just name their price. It's like they're professional baseball players or something. Like if you're a good waitress and in New York City, you could name your price. You could become a partner in the restaurant. Yeah. 
and real quick, touching on the pilot thing, I ran into a pilot. It was a couple months ago. And he was saying how during COVID, all these airlines, just there were no flights. They put together all these package deals for pilots to basically retire early, you know, if they were close to their kind of end date. And now they're probably, I haven't looked at it, but there, there probably is a shortage now, along with other issues and a shortage of other workers. And, but it, yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. There's always been this cycle that you know, there are times where capital wins and times where labor wins. And we've had this, what, 20-year period where we've all seen the stats about like real wages being stagnant while uh, people's wealth based on their assets, like their home or their stocks or whatever, growing significantly. And it does seem like we are in a reversal now where asset prices are coming down, but wages are going up. I know like real wages are still down, I believe, because the raises people are getting are not keeping pace with inflation in a lot of countries. I, th- I think in this past month's data, yeah, th- this past month's data, real wages went up, energy prices okay. went down. So that could be the reason. Got it. Yeah. And pandemics have historically led to massive wage inflation, partly because in prior pandemics, a lot of people die. And then there's just a labor shortage. I Thankfully, the COVID wasn't that bad. But it definitely does seem to have knocked enough people out of the labor force, either because of physical illness or like the perceived risks or inconveniences of it, that I feel like a period of wage inflation is upon us. Yeah, which begs the question of usually real wages don't go up in a recession. And now real wages are going up. Industrial production's up. Wages are up. Job growth is up. These are all things that don't normally occur or never occur in a recession. So we're in this weird new time where it's not a recession, but yet we don't feel good about the economy. So it kind of has no name. Hmm. But, you know, it's all this started with, we were talking about the pedigree. We were, even last week, we were talking about the fact that it was so hard for us, except for Dan, we didn't have pedigree at all. You guys are both Ivy League guys, though. You went to Georgetown. Yeah. You played basketball for Georgetown. We all had unique stories, which helped. But as we all would say, you really needed Goldman Sachs on your resume if you were walking into a room. Yeah, Goldman Sachs and and then maybe a super big hedge fund like Citadel or Bridgewater or even Stevie Cohen, you know, all multi-billion dollar hedge funds. Instead, we just started trading and started dialing for dollars on the phone, hoping to, to raise some money. And we had the weirdest investors. And then... We, of course, we had to pick a weird industry to specialize in, ultimately, which we did a fund of hedge funds in the pipe space. And I won't, I won't get into that whole thing. But it was so frustrating and so painful. Like so many years, we're just trying to raise money because it is a path to wealth. Like all these guys who run billion-dollar hedge funds, we've talked all talked about this before. They're not necessarily great investors. They just own Apple, Microsoft, Procter and Gamble, Exxon, the same yep. thing as the mutual funds, but they charge much higher fees. They have a few years when they're younger where they do more aggressive stuff to to get noticed, and then it's sort of luck which ones uh, succeed at that. And then because of the track record and the pedigree, they raise money and they say, "Okay, now we need to focus on our fees. We can't get fired if we do a little better than the S and P." So that's what they would do. They would just buy the best stocks in the S and P, and that's why Warren Buffett has his challenge, right? Where I forget who it's with, where he basically says, I'll put a 
no load, low fee Vanguard S and P fund up against any hedge fund, any basket of hedge funds, and over ten years the S and P will outperform that group of hedge funds or very close. Now he's a little sly with that because it depends what you mean by outperform. Like some hedge funds, their goal is to be up six percent a year no matter what, and people like that because that's better than a treasury bill. And you can there's different ways to do. Like that's not going to outperform the S and P five hundred though, which is going to be up one year. 20% and then the next year down 10%, it's more volatile, but it might right. outperform. So he's, right. he's a little sly in how he, he does that because he's not taking into account the- And depends on exactly what the investor wants. I, I agree. But it is frustrating because we looked at a number of hedge funds, you know, competitors out there and, and you look at the database and you would see that their top 10 holdings were the biggest holdings and that they returned 9% a year and somehow they had 10 billion under management. And we would yeah. go in the room- with similar track or better track record, a much more unique strategy that maybe was, was different, had a different approach. And if you didn't have that pedigree, you would just get laughed out of the room. They'd find you know any reason to say no. And yeah, that became frustrating. And I can't remember how many days after like just a bad trading day, which was rare, but every trading day was an anxiety producing day. And because of our particular quantitative strategy of trading, we seldom had really bad days, but when we did, so many times I would call either of you and say, okay, now's the time. We just got to sell some sort of diet pill on TV <laughs> and just less stress and we'll figure it out. Get some factory in New Jersey to make it. Here's, here's the thing. We might have seriously actually looked into that. I think we did. Omid always had, and he can speak to it, and, and there's probably a reason behind it, but Omid always had a much more relaxed approach, I felt to trading. And it could have been he was a little younger than us and had a longer term approach, probably had a different philosophy. Whereas we were at different points in our life where either we were starting families or we had young kids. Yeah. Paying, paying for the diapers out of trading profits yeah. is hard. Yeah. So it's very different. And that's what I think Omid was correct in retrospect, I think, where, you know, and this will lead in a little bit into the stock picker stuff, where he didn't want to necessarily give in on fees or he didn't want to make a trade just so we had monthly return. I think he had a healthier outlook and was more relaxed about it, whereas I think we were more rushed. So if there was a situation where someone wanted to give us a big chunk of money but wanted it for, for free, no fees, Omid would rightfully say, no, I don't think we should do that. Whereas we saw it differently where maybe it could have gotten us to a different point or helped us grow. But I, I just think it was a different approach. But at the same time, it, both ways are stressful. But I think that's what got us to a point where we said, okay, we got to try something yeah. different. And that diet pills would have been one of them. But what our natural background where, and really you and you and Omid more so, just the background of writing code and coming up with a quantitative approach for a number of years where we had success trading fed into why don't we take that type of approach, that back end, and put a front end on it, which kind of became stock picker. I have to say... Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice 
Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter. And I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
Sock picker was definitely the combination of, you know, like I had a website company in the 90s, so I knew how to very well how to make websites and how to code it all up. We had a ton of investment and trading strategies that we had been exposed to by that point. And, you know, it was a perfect combination of all these things. And it was the right time as well. People don't really remember MySpace, but MySpace had just been acquired by News Corp for $500 million. So we literally made the MySpace for finance. That's what we would call it. There was no such thing as the Facebook of finance. It was the MySpace of finance. Yeah. The MySpace of investing. Yeah. Yeah. Whose idea was it originally? Was it you? James? This must have been you that came up with it, right? I, I, I had nothing to do with like the ideation. I think because I had, at, by that point, I had a lot of experience writing for websites. Here, here's the problem. So I was writing for thestreet.com. I was writing for Financial Times. I was writing for Forbes, Yahoo Finance. And I saw that every piece of news was essentially BS, was inaccurate. It was the whole thing that now is a cliche, almost like the stock market would go up three points, which is nothing, and they'd have to give a reason for it on CNBC. They'd have to say, oh, oil fears and stocks were down. And then you'd look, oh, stocks were down 0.01%. But they have to have an explanation for everything. So I wanted to create a financial news site without any news. <laughs> so that, that was the goal. And I wanted it uh, to be social. So I, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I just had a flashback to one of my favorite memories when we worked together, which is that because of your FT column, you were called into a meeting with a bunch of FT reporters. And yeah, I remember talking to you afterwards and you said, they asked you point blank, like, can you tell us why markets go up and down? Because we have no idea and we just have like a bag of, oh, stocks rose because interest rates fell or yeah. oil prices went up. That's so funny you said it because when I was just saying what I had just said, I think I was quoting that meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. So it's true. And they were, they're all very smart people. Like they all, there is no reason why stocks go up on right. most days. There is no reason yeah. why stocks go down. And like right now, as we speak, crypto's a little bit down uh, over the weekend. And, you know, just this morning, Robin was asking me, well, why is crypto down? There's no reason. Like, it has nothing to do with anything in reality. There's some, maybe there might have been some headline, but the reality is some big investor that we don't know of probably pulled out of one crypto and went into another or went into cash until tomorrow when he goes back into crypto. And who knows? And at the FT, you know, and at any newspaper, they, they either repeat the press releases they're getting from companies or they try to think of something that's going to scare you. Like, I, I would walk into you know, one company and I wouldn't, I won't say which one it is. And they would say the, at the editorial meeting in the morning, they would say, what's the way we can scare people the most by 9am. And then that's the articles that they would all write. So it was all fabricated and it wasn't useful to the investor, but all these investors had CNBC on all the time. They would read all the websites by 930 and there was no value in any of that. One of our investing strategies and oh man, this is when we were all in the same office, but you were trading more of the quant strategy. And Dan and I started trading this strategy where we would, and we did some, some statistical research on this, and it was a good strategy where you would find, let's say, all of the stocks that Warren Buffett owned, and you would see which ones are trading below the price that Warren Buffett bought it at, and we would buy those stocks. Because if Warren Buffett bought IBM at 100, and now it was trading for 80, it was as if Warren Buffett was like our intern for free. He would just give us this. He would say, hey, why, do you, why don't you guys buy IBM at 100? And we would say, Warren, just sit down in the corner and just don't worry about it. And then at 80, 
would say, boy, that Buffett kid, what a loser. Yeah. We're just going to buy it at 80 now. <laughs> and, and so then we picked like 20 hedge funds like that. And we would statistically, that strategy worked. You, you could get a, an above market 10% return. So whatever the market was plus 10%, if you did that kind of strategy with Buffett in particular, but we applied it to Carl Icahn and a lot of uh, good value investing hedge funds who are long-term holders. This is great because since you mentioned like crypto and nobody knows anything, there is this arms race in crypto to come up with new valuation metrics based on the fact that you have all this data on the blockchain. And who knows, right? Maybe they're like whatever the crypto version of PE is or stuff like that. And I always encourage my students, I'm like, this is an opportunity if you're analytically minded to for you to make your mark, because stuff like stocks and bonds have been picked clean, but crypto, who knows? And one of the more reliable Bitcoin price indicators involves looking at the price where people acquired Bitcoins, because what you can do is you can be like, here's a coin, it changed hands here and here. And the price, you just look up the dollar price each time. That's not on the blockchain, but you just get it from an exchange or something. And then if the average big owner of Bitcoin is now negative, that's historically tended to be a reliable bottoming indicator in the various cycles over the last 10 years. And it's so funny. Like I just realized what you and Dan were doing was the equity markets version of this 20 years ago, where I guess you were getting the 13F, the filings with the SEC yeah. that all the big hedge funds have to file. Right. And you looked at the price at which they acquired it. And if the thing was trading below that, then it was some kind of an indication that it's bullish. Yes. Yeah. So there are three filings, a 13F, 13G, and 13D, where the 13F Everybody with $100 million, hedge fund or any institution with over $100 million in stocks, has to report all their holdings at once a quarter. Then the 13G and 13D is if you own more than 5% of a company, you have to pretty much immediately file that you own more than 5% of a company. And a 13D and specifically was interesting because the 13D said you were going to reach out and talk to management, which is kind of an ominous yeah. sign for management. <laughs> if someone filed a 13D on your company and it was the D instead of the G, then management's jobs were in trouble. They brought their 5% for a reason. People love that. When, yeah. we, when we took that strategy to the one group we took it to, they loved the 13D component. And I think a lot of our trading for that group was more around the 13D than the others. And that was separate from stock picker kind of encompassed all those filings. I remember we did that strategy for them the first, well, for, well in 2006. And in the first half, we made them a lot of money. And in the second half, we were starting to break even and they were used to hedging every position, but they ignored that with us when we were just making nonstop money in the first half. And in the second half, we were a little bit more volatile. So they like almost immediately stopped us. So net, we made them a lot of money, but yeah. they didn't realize that Buying stocks could be volatile for some reason. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's the same issue we, the three of us, always dealt with, which is for some reason we would look at these other funds that would have these drawdowns for three months, six months, two years. And for some reason, they had that rope. Their investors gave them that rope. Whereas we'd have 14 straight up months. And if we had two down months in a row, it was, it was over for us. Even one down month, we'd get the phone calls. Right. People wouldn't call us for 14 straight months. And we had one, one down month down like a half a percent. Yeah. And everyone would call us yeah. like, are you guys falling apart? Like what's going on? It was, it was crazy. But to your point, like 
Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's number two, has been for 60 years. They've been best friends. Charlie Munger's, you know, multi-billionaire owner of, of Berkshire Hathaway, is the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. And he started a hedge fund in the 70s. His first two years, he was down like 20% a year. And then after that, he climbed back up and broke even. And once he was even for all his investors, he got out of the hedge fund business. <laughs> so it's hard. The idea of what we were trading, that idea became the basis for Stock Picker, yeah. which is that we would put all of the great investors' portfolios and we would update it constantly. So if you wanted to see what Warren Buffett owned, you wouldn't have to dig through SEC filings. You could just go to Stock Picker and we would have 100 different hedge funds and mutual funds or, or hundreds and all their portfolios, which we updated every day that there was more data. But then on top of it, we allowed everyone else to put their portfolio in there and then see who they correlated the most with. Oh, your portfolio correlates with Warren Buffett and then these other individual investors who are signed up for Stock Picker. So you could see what they were buying and, oh, this is what my style is. And you could get a lot of information from that. And that was the, the best part about it is remember, so you'd have your portfolio on there, you'd have 100, 200, 300, whatever, a thousand of the best investors out there. We'd match your portfolio with theirs. You'd find all the common positions, but then you would get five recommendations based on your portfolio right. of what all the top five picks of all the top investors in the world that you should look at based on your portfolio style. And people love that. And you could see what other individual investors would sign up and put their portfolios in and you could friend them or like them or follow their portfolios or message them. Uh, and then on top of that, again, no news was allowed. There was no news on the site. But what we would do is like every trading strategy we had ever used we had a menu. We put all the trading strategies on the site. So like if our four by four system triggered a signal, we would say, hey, this system triggered a signal. If one of the Bollinger Bands triggered a signal, we would put it. You know, we had all sorts of quant trading strategies that we put on the site. And we also had some insider trading portfolios, like which companies had the most employees buying stock. It was a valuable investing site that as opposed to every other financial news site. Like this is a site you could actually go to and potentially be a starting point for making a serious trading decision, which I don't view that as the case for like Wall Street Journal or Financial Times or any of these other sites. Yeah. So it was a, it was a fun idea. And then, but the real way it happened, and this is the way business happens, I should add, before when I describe this story. So the CEO of thestreet.com called me up and we would usually have breakfast once a year just to trade ideas. Jim Cramer asked me to start writing for thestreet.com back in 2002, and I was really excited. It was my first paid writing gig ever, and that's really how I developed into all my other writing stuff. So Tom, the CEO of The Street, he called me up and said, let's have breakfast. I said, okay, two weeks from now. So I scheduled for two weeks from now. Then he, he said, I want to see what your latest ideas are. What are you working on? So we, we immediately brainstormed afterwards. What could be a social media site for finance? Because again, MySpace just got bought for 500 million. Social media had just become a buzzword. It might not even been called social media then. It was called social networking. And it was just then becoming a buzzword. And so I figured we kind of brainstormed what could be a social media site for finance. We came up with the rough outline for Stock Picker. Then I hired these guys in India. I used freelancer.com or one of those, elands.com, some site like that, to hire these guys in India to sketch out each page of the site we were thinking of as if the page was done. And so when I met Tom, he's like, what are you working on? And I said, oh, we're building this social media site. It's like the MySpace for investing. 
And he said, well, we, we'd like to be a part of it. And I'm like, Tom, we're already done. Here's all the pages. <laughs> I had all the sketches, the finished sketches of all the pages. And he's and I'm like, I'm already talking to Yahoo and AOL, which to be fair, I probably had mentioned it to them. And Tom's like, how could you do this? We're like practically family. How can you do this without us? And he said, I really want to be involved. And I said, again, Tom, we're already done with the site. What do you want to do? And, and he said, well, how about we put ads? We have run over ads. How about we put the ads that go on the street.com? We'll put them all over stock picker. And I said, okay, that's great. If you what about if you put a button for stock picker on every page of the street.com and instead of me writing one article a day, I'm going to write three articles a day for the street. And I would just litter it with, you know, links to stock picker. So you know, and then I would ticker it up because Warren Buffett's portfolio would have, or Dan Loeb's portfolio, or Carl Icahn's portfolio would have all these tickers. I'd write all these articles about their portfolios, and those articles would appear on Yahoo Finance because the street had a distribution deal with Yahoo Finance, and Yahoo Finance was the biggest driver of traffic. So Tom said, done. Can we be involved? And I said, yeah, if you could do all that. And he's like, okay, well, what percentage do you think we should have? And I said, well, I'm thinking around 3%. <laughs> And he said, well, we were thinking around 50%. And I said, done. Because <laughs> 50% of zero is, you know, I'd rather have, you know, whatever the saying is. Yeah, yeah. 97% of zero is better than, right. is not better than 50% of something. Right. We kept all the ad revenues. So like from day one, which is like how I like to do a business. We were profitable from day one. There was just, we're making 90,000 a month in ads on day one. And we were driving all the traffic from Yahoo Finance through the street.com to us. I think by the time though, you got back to 685th and told Omid, I think I tried to call <laughs> Omid after that. And Omid never picked up the phone at that address ever again. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you, you, Omid was... Oh, it was on board for a while. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, but that was the beginning of the end of our relationship. Yeah. I was like, this is so much more valuable. You, you really did not like that. I, didn't, I don't remember the details of it, but I, I do remember I had a feeling that you were giving away too much of what would end up being a very valuable asset. Yeah. I mean, you were right in the sense that any good business, if it stays consistent and persistent and just stays in business, it's going to keep increasing in value. Like we, we had a great website, which people loved. People were addicted to it. People spent all day on, on the website because there were message boards and comments and people were messaging each other. You know, there were message boards for every stock. There were message boards for every portfolio. People would start their own threads. It was, a, it was like almost like a Reddit for finance, really. Yeah. And you had the right instinct, Omid, that if we had kept at it, it would eventually be worth $100 million. But we didn't want to keep at it is the problem. And <laughs> yeah. when someone owns 50% of something, first off, the street.com was a public company. So when you own 50%, they had to consolidate our revenues on their balance sheet. So we were important to them. If they only own 3% of us, we would not be important to them. I'll continue a little of the story. January 1st rolls around and that was our official launch. We launched, we announced with the street.com. We're stock picker and the street.com doing this deal. And just a little background. For years, I had been doing an article every morning by 8 a.m. on the street called Blog Watch. I would basically write about, here are the top 10 blog posts from last night that everyone should read this morning. And so I drove a lot of traffic to many of the bloggers. And so when we launched Stock Picker, I asked them to review Stock Picker. So they ended up driving a lot of traffic of their audience to Stock Picker because they all were grateful that I had driven a lot of traffic 
to them. And then we announced on January 1st uh, with thestreet.com that we're doing this whole deal with them. And so Jim Cramer started mentioning Stock Picker every day on CNBC's TV show, Mad Money, which is the most popular finance show at the time. And we would crash every day the moment he mentioned it. I think Omen actually, maybe by then you had left. I'm not sure. Were you with us? No, I I remember vividly when the partnership with the street went live and the two things that happened was one i the street had these different properties right like the street.com real money whatever and they're all tabs on their website and can click from one to the other so they added stock picker as a tab and then on that day i think was the first time kramer mentioned it on tv and what immediately happened is the whole site crashed yeah everything i actually remember i was at the gym in Midtown, the New York Sports Club on 51st and Lex. And I believe Dan called me. And he was like, the whole thing is down. We just had too many people trying to sign up at the same time. In part because this was like something, James, you bootstrapped on a weekend with the yeah. help of freelancers from yeah. freelance.com. Yeah. It was never yeah. optimized to handle God knows how many hundreds of thousands of users trying to sign up simultaneously. Well, I was just going to say, oddly... As stressful as that was for us, I think Jim loved it. He loved that he was able to crash the site. <laughs> like, you know, you might be right. Like, maybe, like, and you know, I love Jim. I'll always be loyal to him. He's, gave, he's given me so many opportunities, and I really didn't want to disappoint him. And he would mention the site on Stock Picker. It says, Carl Icahn just bought Delta Airlines. Yeah. Everybody load up, <laughs> and everyone would start going to Stock Picker. And it would crash every single day. And I was having a heart attack. I couldn't, I had to like sleep downstairs because I just couldn't sleep. I was just moving around all the time and constantly checking the site. And then our programmers were in India. And so they were all, they were up in our nighttime. So I was just up 24 hours a day and they couldn't fix the problem. Every single day it crashed. And finally, January 12th is Martin Luther King day. I just remember every day vividly. And I told him, you have to get it fixed. It's a three-day weekend. You have Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, Martin Luther King Day, to fix this. You have to fix it. And it didn't seem to me like it should be that hard. It was just a matter of optimizing the database, I think. I don't know. And finally, Monday, they send me an email in the morning. It's like a holiday for them, some obscure holiday for them as well. And they're like, look, we're going to be out for the day, but just to let you know, we couldn't fix it. And, And we have no idea what the problem is. And so finally, I called... I hadn't spoken to this guy in probably six or seven years. He was the best programmer on the planet. When he was in grad school, I was an undergrad, but we worked on the same project. And then I remember he ended up getting his PhD and then working for IBM. And he was so good at programming. I remember one time he was telling me, and I might get the story inaccurate. My apologies to Chet if I get the story a little inaccurate. But the IBM was hosting the Olympics like live. It was the first probably ever big live streamed event ever. This was in 1996. And Chet calls me and he's, oh, the Olympics went down. And from his apartment, he wrote code to parallel process like all of IBM supercomputers around the world. He created the first parallel processing web server with all these supercomputers. And that was a, and then the Olympics was back up for the rest of the time. And I think ever since then, he was like, he could do whatever he wanted at IBM. And he had, he had roommates. He was living a very low-key life. I remember one time I visited Chet's apartment. I, I met one of the guys. And later I asked Chet, oh, what does that guy do for a living? Is he a programmer? 
And Chet was like, nah, he used to be, but now he just plays guitar all day and just hangs out. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, why does he do that? And Chet says he wrote the code for Microsoft Word. So he was hanging out with great programmers as well. So I called Chet. I hadn't spoken to him in several years. I called him up. I woke him up. And I'm like, Chet, you got to help me. We'll give you even equity in this company. Chet Murthy, it was his last name. He was Indian. But I hired some guys from India. And what's wrong with all the programmers there? And, he, and Chet's like, whoa, 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 I'm Indian too. But then he, he said, look, just imagine you hired a bunch of programmers from New Jersey. They're like that. <laughs> and so Chet said, look, I have to get ready. I'm giving a speech in Paris tomorrow and I'm going to the airport. So I'll call you from the car. And so he gets in the car. He's logged on to the internet somehow. I don't know how he did it back then. And, you know, I gave him access to all the code and, and everything. He says, oh, I see exactly where the problem is. By the time he got to the airport, he had already talked to Arvind in India and sent Arvind a whole bunch of code and said, just put this in here and here and it'll be fixed. And then by the time he landed in Paris, they had mostly fixed it. And he was still at the airport in Paris and he fixed the rest of it. And then it never crashed again. Yeah. And so it, it can't be understated. Chet was the best programmer on the planet. He ended up retiring at Google. He spent his last few years of his career at Google doing whatever he wanted. And then they let him retire with probably a ton of money. He, I said, I got to give you equity in the company. Like you saved the whole company. And he said, no, 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 I can't. I said, why not? He said, because I owe you. Because do you remember that time? He says to me in 1994, I was going on and on about object-oriented programming and how it was going to be the future. And you said, no, 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 just focus on nothing but the internet. And he said, I tried to argue with you, but you said, no, no, just the internet. That's how I started getting into internet programming. And so he said, now nah, I just paid you back. That's great. That's a great story. Yeah. He saved everything, man. I was going to have a heart attack. He really did. And from that point forward, it really was a stable, it, it never went down. Even when Kramer would mention, it was great from that point forward. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom. And supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's next level supermom. From pneumonia to shingles, HPV and more. Get no cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. Zero dollar copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. But Omen, it was around this time that you did quit. I remember specifically like Tom, the CEO of street.com, he was trying to impress some of his investors. And so he wanted their portfolio. So it was a big fund that was invested in the street and he wanted their portfolio on Stock Picker so he could show them. And you were like, I'm busy doing something else with Stock Picker. <laughs> and I said, I said, look, Omen, please, Tom, you know, he owns 50%. And you're like, why does he own 50%? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and you were so upset. I don't remember if you did it or not, or if you did it and then you you disappeared. <laughs> I don't remember either, but I, I I do remember. And there was a there was like also a salary negotiation between us that went wrong. But I made all the classic mistakes that a young person does in a situation like this. I got very emotional. I took it personally. I overreacted. I remember Dan calling me and he was like, just don't leave. We'll figure this out. This is just a temporary thing. And I was like, no, blah, blah, blah. And like, I think I left yeah. that day the office. And then I also yeah. recall, James, I think I wrote like a 10-page letter to you about all of the all of my grievances, which then some friend or family member, somebody like was wise enough was like, as a general rule of thumb in life, you should never send anybody a 10-page letter about anything business-related. And if you are, you're probably the right. one in the wrong. <laughs> um, but no, then- and look, here we are all, all together many years later, but there was no hard feelings. But you're right. Like, part of the, This is always the problem with jobs. Like, I knew you fresh out of college. And so it was, we should have, particularly since now we're running two businesses, we should have increased your salary more than, than we did. I think we were on the kind of the same schedule from when we had started, you had started out just trading straight out of college and we were starting to make money and, and you should have been more a part of that. I a hundred percent agree. And that I think we could have worked out, but I remember in the 10 page letter, you, I just remember one line you wrote, you also wrote about my shirts and me just throwing away. I was going to just my, bring that up, oh, which is wow, fantastic. But you wrote, I not only quit style picker, I quit you. And that, that was my favorite line in the letter. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it, there was a lot of emotion involved. But the, the other good thing and challenge about the three of us is that we were all good friends yeah. and more. I, I was a younger guy. You were a mentor to me, James. You gave me my start in many different contexts. But that does then make it complicated when you get down to things yes. like just disagreements. And I was probably wrong about a lot of it. And and I also, again, like as the 25, 6, whatever my age was at the time, who did not have the kinds of financial obligations and responsibilities that you guys did, it was easier for me to, on principle, stand on something like, you got to negotiate for more money or you got to say no to yeah. Kramer or whatever, which I think now I see younger 20-somethings do the same thing. Sometimes to me, and it's like you don't know the context and you can't know the context because you have not had the experiences that somebody older than yeah. you in your situation has. Well, well and, I'll, and I'll describe what happened, why the 50% probably turned out to be a good decision for us. But there's one thing I really regret. Well, no, no, actually this happened later. There was the launch date and then foreshadowing four months later, we sold the company for $10 million. I'll tell that story, which is, as soon as we launched the partnership with the street, which was January 2nd of 2007, I basically put the company up for sale. So I visited Yahoo. I visited AOL. I visited Reuters. I visited Interactive Corp. They didn't even have a financial site. They were thinking about building one. I visited Forbes, Google. Oh my God. I've, yeah. I remember Katie Stanton, Katie Jacob Stanton, who then became a top person at Twitter. And then she worked for Obama. Like she rose up and now I think she's a, a VC or something. So she was in charge of the Google finance. Google had their own Yahoo finance, but it wasn't really successful. So we were bringing this, the MySpace of finance to them. So I called them and I remember I went to Google 
I was in heaven. Like I thought I want to be bought by Google. Like I want to work here. And people were like skateboarding in the hallways. And there was like a barbershop on the first floor of Google and great food in the restaurant. And then I go in this conference room and I'm like the only one in the conference room. I don't even know if they have this technology yet released. Like this 3D conferencing. And I'm talking to people like in every office in Google, like all around me. And they were really interested. And I remember I get back, I was staying in New York that night and I, I get back to my hotel and I'm, I'm just thinking about Google. It's like literally like I just got back from a first date. And at three in the morning, I get up and I write them an email. Oh, I'd really love to you know, meet with you guys again. <laughs> it's exactly how I would have reacted like on a first date in high school. I wrote <laughs> Google and I was so excited. Oh, I can't wait to work with you and brainstorm more ideas. And they essentially never wrote me again. And they said, oh, not going to do this. But they did write me several weeks later and said, listen, we made a mistake. You signed the wrong non-disclosure agreement. Can you come back up to Google and sign a new non-disclosure agreement for us? Which I did. Who like That's how much I thought, well, maybe I can rekindle this romance by going up and showing I'm a team player. <laughs> I'll sign the, the new non-disclosure agreement, which I probably just broke on this podcast anyway. So hopefully there's a statute of limitations on that. But so yeah, we spoke to everybody. And I would keep Tom updated. Oh, AOL's interested in buying us. Yahoo's interested in buying us. They all were interested, by the way. AOL was like, loved us. Forbes loved us. Yahoo loved us. I had really great meetings and I had second meetings, third meetings. And so finally, Jim Cramer said to Tom, look, we can't let AOL own half of Stockpicker and we own the other half. We got to buy the whole thing. And so I said, sure. And then the negotiation with the street happened. And this was a fascinating negotiation. I really learned about negotiation from this. So I said, look, Steve Elks was the, the CFO. I said, Steve, in order to come up with a number, we have to know, we just start, we have to know next year, how much money we're going to make over the next year. He said, okay, fine. Let's just take your estimated page views, what our average CPM is. We'll cut it in half because we don't know for sure about next year. And that'll be the price. And so when I did the numbers in my head, I figured we were selling stock picker for 30 or $40 million. So I agreed to this formula. So lesson number one, when you're doing the negotiation, come up with a formula that you think the other side doesn't understand all the metrics and have both sides agree to the formula. So it's agreed. It's set in stone. This is the formula, how we're going to value your company. And Steve clearly knew their marketing numbers better than what their average cost for advertising were better than I did. And so he's smiling the whole time. Yeah, yeah, we'll value it at that, whatever you want. Because I'm the one who started like brainstorming all this next year stuff. And I remember... I might have called you, Dan. I might have said, I think we're selling this for like $36 million. Yeah. And then I get in the office with Steve and I, I run through the formula and I fill in all the blanks. And I'm like, I think this comes to $36 million. And Steve's like, you know, maybe, but I don't know. How about we call in the head of sales and we'll get the actual numbers from him. And he's smiling like he didn't know anything. And yeah, whatever, whatever you say, he probably knows the right numbers, don't you think, James? And I'm like, yeah, sure. It can't be that much different from mine. So Tom... This another Tom comes in, the head of sales, and I say, so your CPM is 40 bucks and your CPM is cost per thousand impressions when people pay for an ad. I say, oh, your CPM is $40 and, you, and we're selling out all the inventory and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, it doesn't quite work like that. We come up with a real CPM. Apparently they gave away most of their ads for free. And so the average cost per thousand impressions was much, much lower. So instead of 36 million, the final valuation for a stock picker was 10, of which they owned half. 
So we got five for that and in most of it in street.com shares. And that was a, a real good lesson in negotiating for me. To, to Steve, Steve Elks was so unemotional and a, such a great negotiator. I mean, the only negotiator, Dan, that you and I had met that might have been in the same category as Steve was Mark Canelli when we were at the venture, when two on two ventures eight years earlier. Yeah, Mark was the best. He was the best. He was a, a real professional banker. Like he'd been a banker for 20 years. He knew how to negotiate. And his technique for negotiation was just to basically act stupid. Yeah. So he would basically say, explain this to me again, like I'm in fifth grade. Like I'm not really getting it. But then when he came down to the actual negotiation, like he would say, well, I don't really understand. Fax over an offer and we'll figure it out. And I remember Vestcorp wanted to invest $125 million in the VC fund and, and, here, and they agreed to 3% fees, like these outrageous fees. And then we get the facts and I look at it. This is back in 1999. I look at it. I'm like, Mark, just call them before they realize what they've done. I like, say, yes, agree to this. And Mark's like, ease up. I'll call them next week. <laughs> he went back and he asked for more. And he also said, look, we're just getting offers left and right. And Ed gets his own offers left and right. So eventually InvestCorp agreed to everything he asked for. And then when InvestCorp wanted to get rid of us two years later after the internet bust and everyone thought the internet was a fad, I thought we were going to get zero. He managed to get the whole deal, a 10-year deal, like paid out in fall. Yeah. So yeah, he, he was the best. He was a very good negotiator. And he was such a nice guy too when he's negotiating. Yeah. Uh, you didn't want to say no to him. Yeah. But anyway, here's a major regret I have. So Omen though, to the point of the 50%, if they didn't own 50%, there was another company where they only owned, I forget, 10 or 15%, and that company went bankrupt because the financial crisis happened mm. and the street had no obligation to, to do anything with them because it wasn't on their books. The street would have had to keep us alive while they were dying if in the financial crisis if they hadn't bought us. So they were literally invested in having a successful outcome with us, which they created by acquiring us. And it was only because they owned 50% that we made even a dime off of stock picker. Yeah. So that's where in a worst case scenario, it really helped to have 50% of something instead of 97% of nothing. Yeah. So you might've been right in other situations though. I don't know. But in that situation, I mean, we would have all gone, I would have gone broke. I don't know. Yeah. I would have gone broke. <laughs> Part of that. And this goes back to when the three of us were trading very early on and the tension not in a bad way, but in a good way, was I think, James, for you and I and Oma, we've talked about how Oma's a little younger and had a different situation where you're always looking for stability. And that's what this gave us. It was so hard trading and we did very well, but just that stability where you were part of something bigger, where you had other people that could make calls or introduce you and we then became involved with a lot of the street.com's other properties. Dan was running real money that yeah. <laughs> He was yeah. running like the major revenue out uh, source for the street.com. That's right, out of my parents' basement. Yeah. But it put us in a situation, and I think we we did very well for the street. Um, and I've always loved Tom and Jim and everyone there. I thought we tried to do a bunch of different things. And they were post stock picker. The only thing I'll say is probably the redesign kind of was the end of stock picker. If you remember, we got that corporate redesign. Yeah. And they never focus grouped it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And by the way, a little side note, in 1998, my old company, Reset, which made websites, made the website for the street.com. So yeah. they were still using the, yeah. the website I had designed. And it was great. It was very functional. I was always in favor of 
frictionless design. Yeah. And they made a redesign that had a lot of friction. You had to click lots of times to get to core articles and even to get to stock picker. But I will mention there's one regret I had, which is not quite a regret. Like I was happy we did it, but I'm always a big fan of overpromise and overdeliver. So the day after we were officially acquired, like the day we really were part of the street.com 100%, we launched a new feature, which I regret not owning separately, which was essentially a Q&A feature. Anyone could ask questions and anyone could answer those questions. And this became the, the traffic to the site, by the way, just for anyone who has websites out there, if you add this functionality to your website, the traffic went up about almost 100% that day and stayed that way. Yeah. So, so for at least the next several months, Nobody can complain about the acquisition. Like we we were over delivering, yeah. we over promised and over delivered. But that now you have the exact same functionality was recreated in Quora, yeah. which became a multi billion dollar value company. We had Quora built yeah. from beginning to end several years earlier, and we should have ran with that separately, and we just didn't. It was hard, so we should have done that. And I think what happened is the three of us operated very uncorporate like we we did our own thing we were trading we were entrepreneurial we were trying to build we built a hedge fund a fund of funds we we had all kinds of other ideas and i think soon as soon as we sold stock picker we became corporate right all of a sudden yeah. we were there and so this idea that we could have somehow controlled or owned this separate piece on top of stock picker any other ideas we had we're not done, but we couldn't operate like we usually did. We couldn't sit at 685th with Omid and come up with new ideas or new plans. You know, it was almost like we needed to see the stock picker acquisition through, build it. And we just saw as it got more and more corporate, we had less and less control. And not really control, but we just couldn't build it and push it the way we wanted to. And so that kind of led to we th what we thought was maybe going to be an exit for us where we thought maybe the street might get acquired. It oh, yeah. And I don't even know if I described that in the last one. But then because now we were like high level at the street and we were big shareholders of the street.com, I was in the meetings with, with GE, which owned NBC, which owned CNBC, when they wanted to buy the street.com. I was in the meeting when the woman said, we will buy it for a billion dollars by... September, and she's talking about September 2007, I think, or maybe 2008, I forget. It was 08. Yeah, she said, we're going to buy it for a billion dollars, which would have been like a $40 stock price. And we had sold a stock picker when the stock price was like six or something. And I would go back to Tom and say, oh, they're going to buy it for a billion. And he's, no, they're not going to buy it. And I'm like, why not? He's like, was Jeff Zucker in that meeting? And I said, no. He said, they're not buying it. You have no champion within GE you have to have a champion on your side or else everybody above this woman, and there were many people above her, she was like not at the highest level. And they're going to all ask her to defend this purchase and she's not going to be able to. They, we needed a champion who had influence. And so he, that was a good lesson from, yeah, from Tom. That was great. Because he called it from day one. He did. And for three months, I kept saying, no, there's just a delay. They're definitely buying us. I was in the meeting, Tom. They said they're going to buy us. They made an offer. And he's like, I will bet you whatever amount of money you want to bet that this deal will never close. And he was uh, totally right. Tom was great. I learned a lot from Tom and he was always good to us. And Dan, to your point though about being corporate, I think Omid, that's probably what you were sensing is that suddenly I was calling you saying, look, Omid, can you put up this portfolio? Tom's asking us to do it. And you probably never even heard me say, hey, Omid, you have to do this because someone else asked us to do something. I, I actually think that might have been the first time 
you told me to do anything in, in three, four years together. That was the other thing that like, yeah, that could be the way our relationship was always is like, you, you would be like, Hey, what do you think about doing X, Y, and Z? And then I would come back and either agree or disagree whether that was a good idea. And you're always very open to me being like, Oh, I could do that. But I was thinking it might be better if I work on this blog post or something. Right. And, and by the way, even when you disagreed with us, like you disagreed with us on the trading strategy that we did in 2006 of piggybacking the Buffets. Like you always like the quant approach yeah. better. So you would do your trading, but you weren't really involved in that trading. So even when we disagreed, it was like possible to still fully functional, even when there were disagreements, which is just really the best way to be. Yeah. And then what changed like the street partnership and then the buyout and everything was like, it was, you no longer had the flexibility that you previously had because right. you now have all yeah. these other dynamics that you're dealing with. And then like Dan's like the shadow CEO of the entire operation. And I remember even after I left, Dan would call me and be like, I just like you would, you, you had just looked at their books or something and what they were paying some of their writers on real money versus the actual readership that they had and stuff. Yeah. 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 And I basically got burnt out and disappeared for about six months. And Tom would call me up and say, Look, Jim's looking for you. Where are you? And Basically, Dan would have to call everyone and, and and do everything. I think they were your articles were still posted every day, so I think people thought you were still around. <laughs> <laughs> three, three or four articles three, a day. Three or four articles a day. Yeah, yeah. That was a. I don't think either of us were suited for the corporate lifestyle, but we still were active. And Omid's right. Like, just when we saw, we would walk into those floors with just a sea of people. And we would always joke, like, what are they all doing? What, there was just so many people in cubicles. and Well, I even remember in the financial crisis, we called Tom and said, look, you want thestreet.com to be profitable even in this time. Let's just fire everyone, rebuild the site from scratch in a very simple format uh, where people could just use a content management system off the shelf and people could post articles. And we know what all every article says. We'll manage a team of writers from India for no cost at all to do thousands of articles a day. I knew how to get more traffic than anybody else on the site. So we would get like a ton of traffic still. And that's what they should have done. Yeah. And yeah. we kind of made a pitch that we should be running the company. Yeah. But it was a no-go. And then he got fired. I think we got fired shortly thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got fired. I remember the editor called me into the office. And at this time, I hadn't shown up at the office in six months, even though I lived across the street at that time. Like I lived on Wall Street. And I'm like, well, how would we just meet outside? Like yeah. <laughs> on the sidewalk. Yeah. And he's like, no, I think you should come in. And so I come in and Dave's, oh, I'm in this conference room. And there was an HR woman in the conference room, which you know is like yeah. to make sure you don't start throwing chairs or whatever. And they said, you can either take one third the salary and stay, or we'll give you like a leaving bonus. And then I kind of delayed responding just because not for any insidious reason, but just because I was burnt out and I missed the deadline. And they said, basically, I was automatically fired. So it became this contentious thing. Finally, they paid me a little bit. and But it was very bad to work for, you know, to see the bureaucracy. I think throughout that process also seeing... I think that's where Omid was still trading, right? I mean, you were still trading on your own and building your trading business. And I think we always, at least I did, I would always still look 
at Omid, who was on his own, you know, was autonomous, had a few clients that he was trading for. And I think that's what we, that's what at least I still wanted to do. Not necessarily the trading, maybe, but just something where we were on our own and, and we could make our own decisions. And we, we did again, we, actually. We did. we did. We did a pretty sophisticated quant trading strategy starting our first month was September 2008. We raised a few million and Goldman, we should have had you back on board then. Uh, like you would have loved what we were, we were doing. Dan probably told, told you all about it. But I, I want to mention one more thing, which is that, and this is also related to the, the 50%. And this is maybe, you know, why we differed a little in some of our decisions. Because you're right, we were very good at having different conclusions, but then always being able to move past that. And that's true for Dan and Dan, you and me as yeah. well. Like we wouldn't agree on everything, no. but we basically have never had, we wouldn't agree on a lot of things, but we basically never had a fight since we met in 1999. Right. Like we, we, we never really were upset. Right. But like, I think because we were working with a, a similar risk profile and Omid, you didn't have the same, you were a little younger as, as you put it. But I would say the direction of everything we did was, and this is true for basic investing, but it's true also for entrepreneurship. It's true for a lot of things. Everything we did was in the direction of hedging our risks. Mm. Like risk management became very important to me. So giving the street 50% mm. instead of 3%, as an example, was all about removing risk from the table because now we had potentially a billion dollar partner that was assuming risk with us. Or even when we went from quant trading to a fund of hedge funds, that was a, in a career sense, hedging our risks. So we were still trading, but we started this fund of hedge funds because now we distributed our risk to the hedge funds we invested in. Plus we had a new business model. And even when we had a different trading strategy, like piggybacking the Warren Buffetts of the world, that was about hedging risk. So we had a different trading strategy or building the Q&A mechanism for stock picker and not releasing it until after we were already acquired, which is like the reverse of what people do. Yeah. That was about our hedging our risk as we fit into this new corporate culture and to make sure that we were secure there. So I think our risk profile was a little different as well. And I don't know yeah. Omid, if you over the years, mm -hmm. you know, cause we didn't speak for a few years. I don't know if you sort of evolved into having a more, you know, a different relationship with risk as your career evolved. Totally. That's a very good uh, framing of our differences because what did happen after I left was I was I continued doing the trading and then I got some clients and it was going well and I was able to raise some money. But then it all came to an end in the late 2008, early 2009 period. And which was a really hard time for quant trading as we experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was like an impossible time for small independent Yes. any kind of money manager because a capital dried up and then so much of raising money is about can the person investing in you cover their ass if something goes wrong right and to go back to, we began talking about this different kinds of credentials oh i went to harvard i worked at goldman sachs whatever while those things by no means necessarily make you a, a better trader or even a good trader what they do allow is for anyone who invests in you to be able to cover their ass if it goes bad like if you blow up, they're like, oh, I thought he was qualified. The guy worked at Goldman. After the 2008, if you did not have those or those things, you just couldn't raise a penny. Uh, and then the economics of the industry changed for other reasons too. But long story short, like going through my first, effectively that was the failure of my first startup that was entirely me. 
And this is something that you and Dan had already had experience with prior to Sockpicker, and I didn't. So going through that painful, humbling process, now I could, and I've had many other failures since then, I can appreciate the need to de-risk some of your business. Because I actually increasingly think if you do have a startup, it's a race against oblivion, right? Like you're probably going to zero. And there's a finite window of time where you can hopefully like reach enough escape velocity where you have some kind of a stability. And in that time, no, that's it. I'm like, I understand now why in that time you might say exactly what you said to me back then, which is like, although theoretically I agree with you that the value of the business is not fully captured by the terms of this deal, nevertheless, it's a good idea to do this deal. I think with just with all of my investing and all of my training, like that's why I was writing also. I was making like, for every article I wrote, whether it was for The Street or Forbes or The Financial Times or The Wall Street Journal, I was making a few hundred dollars per article. Yeah. But added up over hundreds of articles a year, plus I would do a book a year. I had a completely separate source of income that was a, a living. I was making a living from writing and I was making a living, you know, a good living from trading. And then stock picker was a further de-risking. So I always wanted to make sure no matter what could happen, I was making a living. Dan, you de-risked by moving from an expensive apartment in New York City yeah. to right after 9-11, you know, you're a young guy, you moved back in with your parents in Cincinnati and then yeah. you met a, a wonderful woman and got your own place, you know, but you de-risked by keeping your expenses low. I did keep my expenses low. I moved 90 miles away from New York City after I first went broke like in 2002 and then just started from scratch. Like I was a, a zero in the investing world, nothing happening. And the internet was busted. So that was my experience. So I had to de-risk completely and just build a career from scratch. So I went down these two paths of writing about investing and investing. And then we did Stockpicker. And Stockpicker, by the way, was our 10th attempt at starting a website. And I remember after the ninth attempt, we had already spent a good amount of money on the first nine sites. And you and I discussed, should we even do this 10th yeah. one? We were like, okay, well, it was worth it because it was about investing. Yeah, that site was the culmination, was really just the continuation of work we had been doing for years. So that, yeah. that, but it is, it's easy to look back now, all three of us, and say, oh, whether it be looking at the risk profile or our risk appetite, it's really easy to look back and say we should have done it this way or that way. But it really did put us all where we are today, which I think we're all good with where we are today. But it, it taught us so many things along the way where when we still make decisions today, I think we can look back on on 15, 20 years and and make better decisions. I think it also, I look at like with where it took Omid. Omid went in a somewhat different direction, but that led Omid into crypto a lot earlier than either of us got into crypto, you know? And it's not that you didn't know about it. I mean, you were you were talking about Bitcoin, James, in 2013. And, you know, but I think it's just yeah, oh my dude became a real you became a real leader and then I just think uh, yeah, just was it a different point where he could do that where I don't think we probably wanted to go through that again, where it was very early and we were gonna jump into that and it wasn't gonna be as stable, quote unquote, as where we were in our careers at that point, where we were years into becoming more angel investors and, and investing in startups. And so that just 
felt a little different. Whereas Omen went down a different path where he was trading and doing different things on his own. And that kind of led him into crypto. And maybe he doesn't end up there if, you know, none of us probably end up where we are if we all stuck together or, or did something different out of post stock picker. Well, and this, this is far from the end of our Wall Street Insane stories, because then, Omen, as you mentioned, even though we weren't trading together, there was quant trading during the financial crisis and so many things. I'd like to hear what happened to you because crazy stuff happened to us in the early 10s and insane. Like, you know, someone tried to rob us of $20 million at one point. I don't know if Dan ever told you that story. And it just got insane. That'll be the even the next episode, all that stuff. But look, not the last episode of Wall Street Insane. We have many even more insane stories to, to tell. But thank you guys once again for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It's not a podcast. It's the James Altucher Show. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom. And supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's Next Level Supermom. From pneumonia to shingles, HPV, and more, get no-cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.